You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 495. I'm your host, Elise Schaefer, and today I'm joined by Mark Reynolds. Mark has been building software for more than two decades with a particular focus on the medical industry. He's currently working with Toximity to create tools that make doctors' lives easier. As an engineering manager, one of his primary focuses over the last couple of years has been to figure out how to reduce unnecessary code coupling and make the lives of Doximity developers easier. He's recently shared his experiences with Rails modularization at Rocky Mountain Ruby. Thanks for being on the show. It's fabulous to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you gave this talk at Rocky Mountain Ruby, and I was fortunate enough to be there, and it was very exciting. And it was on modularizing Rails. Can you mm-hmm. kind of Talk about pack work and this concept of modularizing Rails. What does that mean? Yeah, so I think some of our applications end up getting pretty huge at some points. Just to step back, working for Doximity, uh, we have a bunch of different microservices that we work with. And we forked off one of our microservices or a microservice. And we had a really good experience. It's like that super nice Rails new repo experience where everything is great. Everything's awesome and you're not stepping on anybody's toes and your specs are running super fast. And that was great for a little while, actually for probably a couple of years until we had a lot of people start working in those repos, which happens, right? If a product is super successful, it's going to make it and people get their hands in that code. And it gets a little bit confusing sometimes and, you know, on the verge of being messy. But when we think of modularization, it's taking that Rails way and kind of breaking it up a little bit more so that the code becomes a little bit more discoverable, where a new developer who's coming through finds it very easy to figure out where code belongs, where documentation is, which can be honestly pretty difficult once you get at a certain size of your repository where new devs are just kind of shaking their heads, not knowing where to look for things. So modularization is really taking feature groups of your code and putting it together to give yourself clarity and to give others clarity. So, I mean, I think there's probably many people in the audience listening to this who have either in the past worked on a Rails app that's like this or are currently working in a Rails app. What does it take to take big monolith with like tons of code that's like gnarly and begin to make that modular in a way where people can start to have that onboarding experience be really smooth and simple. Yeah, it can be a super daunting process, right? If you've got a repository that's pretty small, then it's a pretty easy job to break that down if you're talking like just a couple packages here and there. But for us, we had a couple hundred lines of Ruby code to deal with, which when you're staring at that, that's a daunting task. You don't even know really where to start. But the way I looked at it was like, it's the old adage, like how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? We really had to step back and think about how we could take the modularization of a repository of that size and break it up in phases so that mentally we could have celebration, these checkpoints where we could say, all right, guys, We finished this up, we got to this point, look how far we've come, we've got those places, those goalposts, and then move on. I think in talking to some folks at the conference, a lot of people used Packwork, which I can describe in a moment here, but they got stuck at a certain point. And it's useful to a point, but you really have to finish the process for it to be useful, for that tool to be useful. So it was really about 
finding those goalposts that we wanted as a team, and then being really diligent, pushing towards each one of those goalposts until we got to the end, which is a nice repository that everyone's happy to work in and that can grow in a way that everyone continues to be happy in. I wouldn't say that we're done. We're still writing code. And so our system that we've developed continues to facilitate that nice development environment for us to be in. That's awesome. I I mean, I think software is never finished. You're always making new messes and then having to clean them up. I think, I mean, that's maybe a glib way to put it, but that's how I think about it. I think of, well, you're going to do what you have to do. And then, so it's a continual process. How does pack work fit into this? Can you describe Mm -hmm. pack work for those who don't know what it is? Simply put, pack work is basically a static analysis tool that helps us figure out when different modules of our code, we call those packages in Packwork, are breaching boundaries of privacy. And those boundaries of privacy are delineated by special folders that we set up. So in the classic Rails repository, we've got their app directory and then models, views, controllers, and services. And you might have a few more, but generally that's the classic way, right? And everything is kind of at that same level. In Packwork, what we do is we take those controllers, those models, and those views for a specific feature set, and we isolate them in a separate directory, typically packs slash whatever your feature is. And so when we run pack work, what it does is it looks at those packages and determines whether package B is calling into package A, but not in our public declared directory. And that's considered a privacy violation. The other thing it does is it makes us be very explicit about packages that will have dependencies on each other. So we'll be able to look at a particular file and say, okay, these are the packages that we're depending upon. And we can go and look at other package files and say, all right, these are the packages that depend upon us. So those are like our customers, so to speak. So really, it helps us be very explicit about how our features are broken up and how other pieces of code can interact with our package. So when we're saying this is a static analysis tool, you're running this as part of your CI pipeline or on a GitHub action or something? Is that like kind of the idea? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's basically it. That's one of the things that I love about Packwork is that it's super low touch. And when you're introducing tools like this, that's that's really important because we don't want to get in the way of developers. We want to have our tools serve us versus us serving our tools. And when we have a lot of friction for development, that's when developers start ignoring tools, bypassing tools, and then they become less useful. So it's a static analysis tool that's not going to get in your way of development, but you throw that into your CI process and it's going to alert the developer that, hey, you're using this particular module, but it's not a public module, so you can't use it. So either you've got to use public interface that team or that developer has set up explicitly to be called by other interfaces, or you've got to have a conversation about how you can access that data. And that's really the big difference that it's made in our process is that it ends up forcing that developer to developer conversation versus us just assuming that we know how to use that code, which is an interesting change in process, right? Actually talking to each other. Yes. And that's part of what software development is. Part of the challenges are making sure that you're communicating with other people that are using your code. And that's like 
a big part of it. Anything we can do to facilitate conversations between various teams who own different parts is helpful. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as Rubyists, it's interesting that so in our world, you can basically call anything, right? There, yep. In Ruby, you can reach <laughs> into any class. We don't have that privacy like other languages have. And so the tendency is to enjoy that freedom liberally, right? Which it's yeah. great, super awesome. Like you can just get a Rails application up and running super fast. You don't have to worry about any of that privacy stuff. But there comes a point where it becomes a mess because we're still relying on that ability to just reach in and call any code that we want. So it's really a double-edged sword. And stepping back mm -hmm. and using something like Packwork helps us to use that one edge of the sword that's really good without getting cut by the other side where we're using somebody else's code in a way that's unintended. Do you currently use one service for uptime monitoring, another one for error tracking, another for status pages, and yet another to monitor your cron jobs and microservices? Paying for all those services separately may be costing you way more than you think. If you want to simplify your stack and lower your bills, it's time to check out HoneyBadger. HoneyBadger combines all of those services into one easy-to-use platform. It's everything you need to keep production healthy and your customers happy. Best of all, HoneyBadger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at honeybadger.io. That is honeybadger.io. Thank you to HoneyBadger for their continued support of the Ruby on Rails podcast. So when you were implementing this at Doximity, you had mentioned that you were kind of eating the elephant one bite at a time. How did you yeah. decide which bite to eat first? <laughs> well, we started really small. What we did first was to just try pack workout and see how the tools worked. So we had a new feature that we were gonna add to this really large repository and it was fairly isolated already. So we added pack work to our repo and just started a fresh package. And so we started off with zero privacy violations and we built from there to just get a feel for what it was like to live in that ecosystem, what kind of tools we were looking at and how it fit into our CI process and our development process. So once we determined that it was a place that we'd be comfortable living, then we branched out and started looking at the rest of our repo, which was vast. <laughs> so what we did is we stepped back to really think about what our feature set was. It had grown fairly massive. And so we met up with our product people and talked about how they thought about our product, the words that they used, the ways that they mentally grouped together features. And that became the language that we began to use. And that's oftentimes that's the biggest challenge in software development. We think about the big unsolvable problems or the difficult problems. And one of those problems is naming things, right? And that's around language. And so getting clear on language is actually a super difficult problem, very important. And often we bypass it, right? So, yeah. so we decided to not bypass it. So we met together in person and talked about what our code was actually doing. And so that gave us a vocabulary that we could work with. And then from there, once we had that vocabulary, then we used those larger chunks of features that we were talking about and used the names that we gave those. And those served as our base packages, the packages that we started off with. And again, when I'm talking about packages, it's just a folder that we chuck code into. So we got all those folders together and those became the places where mentally our code needed to belong. So once we had those in, then 
we just started opening PRs to just move all of our code into all those folders. And it was very difficult to keep from doing this, but we didn't do any refactoring or any renaming, any code changes at all in those repos or those, those PRs. It was simply just moving code. All our specs had to pass. Everything had to move unchanged. And that really helped us to move very quickly through that phase. So we basically emptied out our whole app directory. And the only things that remained in the root level were really the application configuration files, things that are kind of the base that you get when you roll out Rails application. And so from there, we had all of our packages, but we had all these violations. And again, when I'm talking about violations, it's where code from one package is calling into a code from another package without that code that's being called being in a public directory. And that's literally folder called public. It's very explicit. So then we started setting up our package dependencies, basically saying, okay, we've got this, for example, it's a newsfeed display module, right? It's going to show our users the continuous scroll of newsfeed cards. And that depends upon the module that builds the newsfeed. All right. We drew that line, which is basically adding a line of code in a YAML file. And then let's say we've got that newsfeed builder and that relies on our split test module. Okay, so we write that module or write that, that package line and draw that line in between there. One of the really interesting things that happened was it wasn't until we got here that we really understood how confusing some of our setup had been. And that meant changing around some of our packages as well, adapting. As we became clearer on what our code was trying to do, we had to rearrange things. So that was a really helpful exercise for us to really come to grips with what we were working with. You said a couple things that I just kind of want to maybe dive into a little bit. I think one, mm -hmm. you mentioned this coupling and like how coupled things are. I think it's very easy to get there. I'm curious, and this is sort of tangentially related to how you pick names and how you decided what goes in which pack, but like, did you have any scenarios where a module or a class or something could have gone in multiple packs? And like, how did you think about like where to put it? Well, I mean, to go back to coupling, coupling is always going to exist. That's just the nature of software development. We have to have coupling in some places, right? It's just having coupling in the proper places. And as far as deciding where code goes. Oftentimes, if it could go one place or another, we just put it in one place and then looked at the violations that came up. If the violations that came up were more heavily on one side than the other, then that sort of indicated to us that it needed to belong in, in another place. If it was somewhat even, then stepping back, maybe that feature doesn't belong in either of those packages. Maybe that feature actually belongs in a separate package that can be used by both of those packages. So it's a lot like using code smells to figure out what's going on with your code. If you examine what, our, what your tooling is telling you and step back for a moment and kind of intuit what it's indicating, you can sometimes figure out a better solution than black or white, right? Sometimes it's in between somewhere. Sometimes it's totally different. So I think oftentimes it's important for us to really understand what our tooling is telling us and to work with that and pay attention to it. I absolutely love that. I think this is something that I also have thought a lot about is we get feedback in a lot of different forms. And that feedback could be like, sometimes it's a failure or like a Rubocop lint rule, but there's also the feedback of 
this feels hard to work in or this feels awkward or complicated. And that is feedback that's like the design of whatever you're working on is speaking to you. I think it's so important that you brought that up because that, it sounds like pack work kind of forces you to confront that. And it's a tool that's helping you sort of find those weird, awkward parts of your code and really like explicitly figure out how to interrupt with them. Oftentimes we get used to the difficulty of working with a particular piece of code or working with a particular module. But I think as leaders on engineering teams, we really have to pay attention to the pain that sometimes our developers are experiencing. And I think about it in terms of pain-driven development, and that's not something that's comfortable to talk about. But if a module is really difficult to work with, or our processes are really difficult to work with, we need to address those because that can lead to all sorts of problems, not just with our software, but with, more importantly, the people who are writing the software. We talked about bypassing tooling. And if our tooling is painful to work with, or if our processes are, are difficult to work with, then that's telling us something. That's telling us that, that we need to change something. And that's really what I've been looking at is the whole reason that we looked at Packwork was we were getting a lot of inter-team pull requests where one team was trying to, to modify a particular module that was in another team's code. And this got to the point where we were looking at 85 cross-team pull requests per month. And that's a lot to look through. And it can be stressful for people if something happens where we get a bug then the people who approved the PR maybe feel responsible for it. So as managers, as tech leads, really paying attention to the verbal indicators that our teams are giving us when we're meeting together so to help us understand like where are the pieces that we can jump into our code where we can get clarity, which that's what Packwork basically does, that is going to yield us the greatest benefit. And that, if you address that, that's where you get buy-in for tooling. So thinking about challenges of introducing something like this, it can be big hurdle to get buy-in for something where you're like, hey, I've got this new tool. You're going to do everything different. You got to move around all your code. But if it addresses a pain point that's significantly felt by some of our developers, you're going to get buy-in for something like this. And it's a good thing too, because it means that your code is easier to live with. It's easier to work inside. It's easier to interact with. And when it comes down to it, people feel better on Monday morning, opening up their computer and starting work because they have clarity and they have comfort knowing that they're not going to break something or they're not going to be held responsible for something that they didn't have clarity on at all. Yeah, I think we had Vladimir Dementiev on a little while ago to talk about his book, Layered Design. Mm -hmm. And there's like a sort of a similar concept that we talked about in that episode and I'll link that in the show notes for the listeners, where there are things that are like fuzzy in your code base, where like boundaries are fuzzy. And a lot of what he talks about is like making those fuzzy boundaries clear. And it seems like pack work is like sort of has a similar idea of like, you've got these fuzzy boundaries between these teams. And what you really want is clarity about that boundary and where that boundary should be defined. Yeah, and those boundaries really are those the public interfaces. The code and the modules that you expose in those public directories becomes the conversation point. It becomes the interface point where you agree to something between either yourselves. So if you've got modules, packages that are calling other packages, but your same team, 
is using them, or it's between two different teams who perhaps have totally different priorities, have different skill sets, have different developers, of course. And that's a nice place to be where you may have, say, a very small interface point. It might be five or six methods where you come together and you talk about, we're going to return an integer here. If you pass this, we're going to raise an exception. If you do this, this is the amount of time that you can expect it to return. And that small interface point is where you can't have changes without having a conversation. Then everything inside, all the private interfaces, that's all up to your team to figure out how that happens, which is a lot of freedom. It's very nice to be inside of a module like that and know that as long as you adhere to the contract, how you get to that data being returned, it doesn't really matter. And so you don't have to worry about as many bugs because you just have to verify the contract, make sure you're returning the right data and iterate as you need to. It doesn't need to be in the same server. You can switch your data store to Redis. You can start doing stuff on S3. It doesn't matter as long as you adhere to that contract. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think Rocky Mountain Ruby, you phrase it something like you have this strict public interface, but then you have this private sandbox where it can be like working on a Greenfield Rails app again, where you can kind of just go and code. You can just work really quickly because you have sort of the freedom to do that as long as you're maintaining the public interface. Yeah, right. And that's indicative of having a high level of cohesion inside of your packages. Cohesion meaning that everything inside of it is related. It's all building news feeds. It's all about sending emails, right? None of it's unrelated. But then in between your packages, you have a low level of coupling. There is coupling because you're calling between and that's fine. Coupling is sometimes a bad word in our industry, but we need it because it means that things are using other things. And so having that high cohesion and low coupling is really what a greenfield application is all about. If you think about a Rails application that you're just starting up, your interface is just the REST APIs being called, right? And so as long as you're adhering to that contract where, hey, you send me this verb, I'm going to send you back some HTML, then everything inside is greenfield, right? You can do whatever you want with it. But then as our modules become useful, as they're being used, that coupling increases, right? And then we have to go through processes like this to really get clarity on how we intend our applications to be used. And I think it's worthwhile for us to spend time getting to that point of clarity again, because, I mean, the tools that we're building are solving important problems. When it comes down to it, that's what software development is about, is solving problems that are worthwhile to be solved. And getting there in a way that's efficient and well-organized is worthwhile goal. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Discourse, the online home for your community. For over a decade, Discourse has made it their mission to make the internet a better place for online communities. Discourse is open source and is trusted by more than 20,000 online communities, including some of the largest companies in the world. By harnessing the power of discussion, real-time chat, and AI, Discourse makes it easy to have meaningful conversations and collaborate with your community anytime and anywhere. Are you ready to create a community? Visit discourse.org R-O-R-P to get one month free on all self-serve plans. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your community to the next level, there's a plan for you. 
There's a basic plan for a private invite-only community, a standard plan for unlimited members and public presence, and a business plan for active customer support communities. Plus, one of the biggest advantages to creating your own community with Discourse is that you own your data. You will always have access to all of your conversation history, and Discourse will never sell your data to advertisers. Discourse gives you everything you need in one place. Make Discourse the online home for your community. When we're talking about like organizational stuff, like Packwork seems a little bit like getting the benefits of microservices, but inside of your monolith. And then I guess what I'm curious about is like how you think about there's Conway's law, I think it is, where it's like your code base and your processes will mirror the, your organizational structure. How do you think about managing these packs in terms of how your teams are structured or how your teams work together? And what is that like? Yeah, Conway's law is, is basically what happens naturally, right? And mm-hmm. it's all about really what we're responsible for. Who's going to call who in the middle of the night when your application is down and you're getting a particular stack trace and we have to fix it now? That is basically what happens with Conway's law. And if you've got a pager system or break fix system, it becomes very clear what your organizational structure is because somebody's got to get woken up and take responsibility for it. So I think naturally a lot of our packs will fall along organizational lines. What I've seen is that typically a pack is owned by one and only one team. If that is, it's a feature, like a not an infrastructure package. So we thought of our packages in terms of different categories. So infrastructure packages, like I'm sending an email or interfacing with a split test system. Those could generally be managed by anyone, right? Because it's not feature specific Maybe the knowledge isn't super specific that one particular team would have more context on it than another particular team. And it's not going to change all that much. Your email sending, notification layers, they're probably not going to change a lot unless that is a product within your team. Now, you might have a notification team and they're probably going to own that, right? So I think it's useful when we think about packages to be able to list a specific team to contact. If you're a developer and you're going into this package to call it, you have to communicate with someone. So typically having one particular team owning that package has been pretty good for us, mostly because there's a contact point. So we've had some instances where more than one team will own a package. And generally that does work better for packages that aren't really changing a whole lot, like those infrastructure or basic service packages. So... I'm curious about an organization changes or grows. I think Packwork is probably very beneficial for companies that have experienced a lot of growth or have experienced a lot of the team gets bigger. So the code base gets bigger because you're shipping more features and now the code is all coupled. I think this is a pretty common story in our industry, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the teams that would benefit. But if those same organizations are changing their team structures around, how do you think about who should own something if as you're going through those changes? How do you think about managing the ownership of those packages through those organizational changes? Mm -hmm. If your packages are defined along feature sets that don't necessarily map directly to one particular team, I think it's even more important to get really clear on what those interfaces are because you might have a totally different set of engineers working on that product 
two months from now, three months from now. And imagine handing off that code base with a flat structure of code, like most of our Rails applications are, and not really understanding how things should interact. That can result in a lot of misinterpretations. Whereas with a package system, you just read through the public interfaces and it's almost like reading through specs. Like sometimes if I'm trying to understand how something works, I go straight to the specs to understand how it's exercised. It's somewhat similar with our public interfaces. If you want to understand how something works, there's the documentation right there. That's the contract. It serves as the documentation. So if your team structure is changing or if it doesn't necessarily match to the feature structure, I think this is almost even more useful. And I think it's a useful place to start from as well. We don't have to make a giant mess before we can enjoy like a clean code base. So we've had some products that we started up in Doximity where the repository starts with Packwork and it starts with the base feature set that we know about. And as soon as we start getting that indicator that another feature is being added, again, going back to paying attention to the pain signals, paying attention to our tooling, if we get the sense that there is unnecessary coupling, then another pack is added. And we start with the public interface talking about that contract and get to continue on enjoying that greenfield development experience without making a big mess. So even for people who are starting something new and maybe don't have big mess, I think this can be super useful. Awesome. Yeah, I think it would feel probably great to start with a clean code base and feel like all of this greenfield energy and then you just never lose that energy. That would, that's got to feel pretty amazing. So let's say I've listened to this and I am sold. Where should I go to learn more about Packwork? Yeah, so I think the GitHub repo for Packwork is probably the best place to go. That's maintained by Shopify. And uh, there are a couple of videos out there demonstrating what the folder structure looks like and how to use the tooling. So I would definitely recommend that. And again, I'll underscore that that tooling should probably belong in CI in order to gain the greatest benefit. From there, I would also recommend that you check out the Ruby at Scale GitHub repositories. There's a bunch of extensions that have been written out there for, for all sorts of different uses. Some are for scanning your code to make sure that you've got sorbet markup on your public interfaces or for organizing your packages in layers. There's all sorts of things out there. So I would check out that as well. The other piece is that there is Ruby and Rails modularization Slack channel that you can join which I believe we'll post link for that in the show notes. And I would recommend joining that as well. It's a nice place to ask questions if you're running into process problems. Uh, all sorts of people who are willing to help you work through issues that they've worked through already. That's awesome. And where can people find you online? Probably the best place is GitHub. If you check out my profile page, github.com slash Mark Reynolds, has some contact options on there. Or you can just open up a pull request on one of my repos. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. I was really excited to get to pick your brain about Packwork and to share all of your knowledge with Packwork and your experiences with Packwork with our audience. So thank you for being here. Sure thing. Thanks for having me.
This has been the Ruby on Rails podcast. It was a pleasure talking with Mark Reynolds. Make sure to check out the Packwork GitHub repo, as well as the Ruby at Scale GitHub repositories, where there are tons of Packwork extensions, extensions you can use. If you're interested in learning more about Rails modularization, join the conversation in the Ruby Rails modularity Slack workspace, which is included in a link in the Ruby at Scale organization. There's an updated link there. Thanks to Paul, our wonderful editor over at Peachtree Sound, for making us sound like professionals. And thank you for listening. You're a gem. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening. <laughs>